Welcome to season two of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. This is our second episode on a theme we call Covering the Revolution, a subgenre of films popular in the 80s in which the focus is Western journalists thrown into the chaos of quote-unquote third world revolutions. Uh, These men, mostly, are unorthodox, ambitious, arrogant, but usually good-hearted professionals who want to bring truth to an ignorant audience and force some measure of accountability on indifferent governments, usually the West. Uh, Last episode, we covered revolutions in Central America and discussed Oliver Stone's Salvador, which came out in 1986, and a film directed by Roger Spottiswood called Under Fire that came out in 1983. Today, we're going to Asia and breaking down two more movies that came out in the early 1980s that feature journalists and revolutions. We have Australian director Peter Weir's The Year of Living Dangerously, which was released in 1982, and the unforgettable docudrama The Killing Fields, directed by Roland Joffe, which came out in 1984. The Year of Living Dangerously is based on a novel, but it recreates Indonesia's descent into revolution and genocide in the mid-1960s very well. And The Killing Fields, of course, centers on the real-life ordeal of Dith Pran, a Cambodian journalist and the interpreter for New York Times journalist Sidney Schomburg. The film shows us the horrors of the Khmer Rouge takeover of Cambodia and the subsequent genocide that took place between 1975 and 1979. As we noted in episode four, Viva la Revolution, journalism is really used as a tool by which movie makers can bring their white Western gaze to bear on really complex histories of revolutions, often in countries that are just really caught in the middle of the bipolar Cold World order. We see that in The Year of Living Dangerously, although there are scant few Americans on screen. And of course, the killing fields is a result of the American colossus unleashed in Southeast Asia in the 60s and 70s. So in this episode, we will be revisiting a couple of the lies that we covered last time that that often underpin historical narratives. That, first of all, journalists are heroic idealists and that what they write can change the course of history. We're not asserting that this is always untrue, but truth be told, in films and in history books, journalists exposing truths are usually portrayed as selfless rather than professionally driven, first of all. And more importantly, the impact of the revelations that they sometimes provide can be overstated. After all, history doesn't usually record the 1,000 times a journalist publishes something and nothing changes. We only remember the rare time, like Watergate, when their investigations actually do result in some sort of action. And those two lies are definitely in uh, our films this episode. The third lie, though, is specific to just this episode, and that's more of a sin of omission than of action. Uh, We talked last time about how complex stories of global geopolitics get simplified to fit into, you know, two hours of coherent storytelling 
although with maybe Salvador, maybe not so coherent. But you know, it's you have to cover two hours of storytelling, <laughs> and that curious journalists are trying to make sense of it all, and they're used really to stand in for the audience, who also needs to make sense of it. Uh, but what also often gets lost in the simplifying process is the long-term impact of Western imperialism, centuries of it, particularly in the case of stories about revolution or counter-revolution. Yes, because when the story just opens with the revolution or the immediate lead up to it, the reasons for that revolution are treated more like forces of nature or just often, unfortunately, black or brown people behaving emotionally and destructively. And in the legacies of imperial exploitation and colonial oppression, in other words, the real causes of most revolts and uprisings are often left unaddressed or at worst, even unmentioned. Right. And, and that's why we named our episode after a quote by Kumar, a character in The Year of Living Dangerously, who summed up this frustration with imperial attitudes ruining Indonesia. He says, Westerners don't have answers anymore. Uh, And a key reason why we've chosen both these films is their admirable attempts to properly embed the root causes into the story and the ways in which they still manage to decenter the lives and motivations of the actual revolutionary. And as always, we will begin by recapping our films. And... You know what? Uh, These movies are almost 40 years old, so I think we're just going to say, get over your spoiler alerts. Uh, Go and watch the movie. (laughs) Let's begin with a film by one of our favorite directors, The Year of Living Dangerously. Peter Weir is certainly uh, no stranger to taking on historical topics uh, using a critical lens. Uh, He was crucial to the Australian New Wave movement, and one of his earliest uh, breakout movies into a broader audience outside of Australia was the epic historical drama Gallipoli that he made a year before The Year of Living Dangerously, also with Mel Gibson. Uh, And uh, his other celebrated historical film is one of my all-time favorites, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which came out in 2003. Yeah, that's that's an amazing one. I I almost forgot about that he was behind that. Weir has an impressive filmography, including Witness, uh, The Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, and The Truman Show. The Year of Living Dangerously was written by Weir and David Williamson, The screenplay adapts the novel by Christopher Cook. And the cast is superb. Uh, And we're we're going to, again, sort of leave aside who Mel Gibson has become and instead talk about uh, who he was way back then. I mean, who knows? Maybe he was the same person and we just didn't know. But he's very good in this, as is uh, Sigourney Weaver and quite possibly... These may be two of the most beautiful people to ever appear on screen uh, and, of course, appear together. Uh, Weaver is the British embassy official Jill Bryant, and Gibson is Australian journalist, newly arrived, uh, Guy Hamilton. But, of course, the most impressive performance belongs to Linda Hunt as Billy Kwan, a 
male photographer and local contact for Hamilton. Uh, Hunt won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, but we both think the role was really more than supporting if you look at just how much of the film she's in and how crucial her character is. Yes, she is the heart and soul of the film, kind of the guiding force behind the characters as well. Uh, The rest of the cast is great. Michael Murphy, who actually was in Salvador, a film we talked about last episode, is a positively loathsome American journalist. Uh, Bembel Roko is Kumar, the Indonesian uh, working for Hamilton and the Australian Broadcasting Service. He happens to be a secret Communist Party member as well. And Bill Kerr is Colonel Henderson, the very, very British military attache. So the year of living dangerously begins with the arrival of Guy Hamilton in Jakarta in June of 1965. And this is the moment when there are increasing tensions between the longtime nationalist leader of Indonesia, President Sukarno, uh, and a growing communist opposition, and then a conservative, mostly Muslim military. And Guy joins a jaded and cliquish sort of expat journalist and also embassy community. But he's a neophyte and he needs the help of Billy Kwan, the Chinese-Australian, who's the in-house expert on all things Indonesian, who also has worked for the previous uh, reporter who was there for the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation. Uh, And Kwan is also the self-appointed moral conscience of the mostly vapid and drunken group of Western journalists who are, as with our past episode, competing for any scrap of news or any kind of access that they can get to the regime or to its opponents. But Billy sees something in Guy and helps him get a few good breaks. We'd like to play a clip that kind of gets at what we're talking about uh, with Billy being this moral conscience. And so this is one where he's first getting to know Guy, um, taking him around the really horrific, poverty-stricken city of Jakarta. And they share their views, and you get a sense that Billy has his work cut out for him if he's going to make Guy see what he sees, that there's more to journalism than just the game, but there's actually people's lives to hopefully improve. The people asked him the same. What shall we do then? What's that? It's from Luke chapter 3, verse 10. What then must we do? Tolstoy asked the same question. He wrote a book with that title. He got so upset about the poverty in Moscow that he went one night into the poorest section and just gave away all his money. You could do that now. Five American dollars would be a fortune to one of these people. Wouldn't do any good. Just be a drop in the ocean. Ah. That's the same conclusion Tolstoy came to. I disagree. No, what's your solution? Well, I support the view that you just don't think about the major issues. You do whatever you can about the misery that's in front of you. Add your light to the sum of light. You think that's naive, don't you? Yep. It's all right, most journalists do. (laughs) We can't afford to get involved. Typical journo's answer. Yeah, so here you can really get that Billy loves the people he reports on 
and really knows them and sees his work as a way to help them. And whereas Guy is expressing this idea of, of, of being trained as a journalist to not get involved. Yes, but Billy does like to get involved in the personal lives of our characters. And he, Billy introduces Guy to Jill Bryant, who is clearly British intelligence, but really just poses as an aide to the military attache, Colonel Henderson, uh, as I noted, the most British of the British old guard colonialists uh, still operating in the area. So Billy is an elaborate matchmaker here, guiding his two favorite people together, although Jill's time in Indonesia is coming to an end. Um, so Guy and Jill do hook up eventually, uh, and it's explosive, as you might expect, as we said, very beautiful people. Uh, but Guy is still just a very ambitious journalist, willing to do anything for a scoop. And his big break comes when Jill informs him that the Chinese are arming the PKI, which is the Communist Party of Indonesia. And that's uh, sure to spark a, a bloody rebellion. Jill, of course, told Guy in order to save his life, to, to tell him that he'd better get out of the country before everything explodes. But uh, of course, being the dogged reporter, he intends to break the story and the fact that he will ruin Jill's reputation in the process is of lesser importance. Uh, Billy and Jill are both heartbroken and they cut him off, uh, leaving Guy to fall in with the worst of the worst, the American journalist Pete Curtis, who is definitely there in a, uh, a selfish and mercenary capacity. Kumar, Guy's driver and assistant, sticks with him, but to open his eyes to government oppression, starvation, crushing poverty, more so than to chase the story. Yeah, so these are our three you know, protagonists here have separated in, in a way. And so we follow Billy, who cares deeply about the people of Jakarta and has never been able to separate his job from his soul. And he suffers a breakdown when a child he has been caring for uh, dies from starvation. Outraged, Billy turns on Sukarno, you know, this great leader he once admired because he was an anti-colonial figure. And he does this drastic move here where he hangs a sign outside of Guy's hotel uh, reading, Sukarno, feed your people. And for this simple act, Billy is thrown off the balcony by police. Guy stumbles upon this horrific scene and it forces really him and Jill to reconcile over really their shared sorrow of this person who they didn't know honestly how much uh, it meant to them. Yeah, let's um, play a clip here that is Billy confronting Pete Curtis and uh, another British journalist really just moments before he takes this fatal step of openly opposing Sukarno, who he once saw as the post-colonial hope. We must all drink to that. Come on. Come on. Don't give me this crap tonight. Huh? Whatever Not human good. misery is at its worst, the Billy, press will be Billy, there. Billy, give me a break. Give me a break, will you? You know, people are out there fighting in the streets for rice. I shot some footage. Does anybody want it? Do we have it? No, you're telling me you're temporary short. Sure. 
Why don't you tell them a true story, gentlemen? Why don't you tell them that Sukarno makes empty speeches and builds monuments to his vanity while his people are starving to death? Why don't you tell them that he says, eat rats? My dear Billy, you were the one who told us he was a great man. He was. He was. That's why his betrayal is so hideous. Steady on, Billy. Yeah, I've never really agreed with you on just how much the people supposed to mean to Sukarno. The only thing he wanted to do for his little people was to go to bed with them. <laughs> the female ones, I <laughs> You're right. He does use his people as objects of pleasure. But then so do you. Only you do it with boys. What did you say? You can definitely really appreciate Linda Hunt's acting there. Uh, you, and you can sense Billy's moral outrage at his own profession, you know, the profiting off of, of human misery. And did you catch just how blase the reporters are about the sorrow around them and their utter contempt for the Indonesians? And then, meanwhile, Indonesia is collapsing all around them because Sukarno is ousted and the military takes over. And as a result, thousands of suspected communists are executed. And Guy throws himself into the middle of the chaos as it is, as it is erupting, and he's badly beaten. And it's all of this, all of these events that make Guy realize that the only things he thing he really wants is Jill, not a story. And so he has Kumar drive him to the airport before it closes. It's a, a scene that will be familiar to many as a, the parallel to the later, um, you know, closing down of Saigon, the last plane out of Saigon. It's, it's the equivalent sort of last plane out of Jakarta. Uh, and Guy is forced, as he's trying to get onto the plane and is trying to get past the officials at the airport, he's forced to make the choice. It's made quite stark for him that he can either keep his recordings that would be the, the big story, or he can board the plane with Jill. And ultimately, he leaves his bags at the inspection station and barely makes it to the plane, embracing Jill on the tarmac. Of course, not only has he left behind these bags that contain these recordings that could have sort of made his career, but he's also leaving Kumar, left to live with the consequences of the bloody civil war that's going to come, and that is the legacy of really Western imperial actions that have caused all of this instability to begin with. Yes. And we, we say, we have to remind you that this is a film that's, a, that's taking place in the mid 1960s before just the full catastrophic effects of, of the Vietnam War unfold in the region. And so our second film, The Killing Fields, takes place really at the end of that war, the Vietnam War. And some of the consequences that come from the way it concluded, uh, the Killing Fields comes out a few years after the Year of Living Dangerously in 1984, and I think you now you agree it deserved its cr a critical success, including seven Oscar nominations and three wins for editing, cinematography, and most notably, Best Supporting Actor Farhang S. Noor. The Killing Fields also won eight BAFTA awards, including Best Film. The film was directed by British director Roland Joffe, who also directed The Mission, The Scarlet Letter, and Fat Man and Little Boy, which is a film starring Paul Newman about the Manhattan Project. Bruce Robinson adapted The Killing Fields for the screen. And the cast is wonderful. 
especially, of course, uh, Hangnor as Dith Pran, who is uh, the real life. Of course, the, all of these people are, are real people or composites for the sake of narrative flow. Hangnor is Dith Pran, the Cambodian translator and journalist who endured nearly four years of hell in a Khmer Rouge camp. And now Noor himself was actually a doctor, not a professional actor. And this was his first, and I'm not sure if it was his only, but it was certainly his biggest acting role. And he was cast because he lived this experience too. He survived three camps by virtue of his medical expertise. And like Pran, Noor escaped and made his way to a Red Cross refugee camp. Sam Waterston plays Sidney Schamberg, who was the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times, who got his Pulitzer largely because he was able to rely on Dith Pran for access to the stories that put his name on the front page. While Waterston and Noor are the focus, there is a great supporting cast. Uh, John Malkovich is a photojournalist, Al Rokoff, who also is a real person. Julian Sands plays a British journalist, John Swain. Craig T. Nelson, coach, plays an American military advisor to perfection. And Spalding Gray, the terrific writer, actor, just all around talent, is in a small role, but a memorable one, as a U.S. consul in Cambodia. Yes, and of course, Spalding Gray then wrote the one-man stage play, Swimming to Cambodia, that was based on his experiences filming The Killing Fields, that's also something definitely worth watching. The Killing Fields begins in May of 1973, a few years after Nixon unofficially expands the Vietnam War into Cambodia, uh, sort of chasing the Viet Cong across the border into Cambodia. The Killing Fields begins in May of 1973 a few years after Richard Nixon has unofficially expanded the Vietnam War into Cambodia, uh, sort of chasing the North Vietnamese across the border, as that is where part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, is located. And this incursion into Cambodia, secret to the Americans, is destabilizing the country. And it is enabling the communist insurgent group, the Khmer Rouge, to really begin mounting a successful campaign in the countryside. And Sidney Schoenberg arrives in Phnom Penh uh, and immediately demonstrates his tendency to be an impatient prima donna, uh, snapping at his immensely talented interpreter and journalist in his own right, Dith Pran. Right, and so Pran has to immediately show his worth and he takes Sydney to see the uh, bloody aftermath of a errant B-52 bombing in a nearby town, you know, breaking the embargo put in place by the American military attache, Craig T. Nelson. Uh, so we immediately see how U.S. dissembling and indifference to the fate of Cambodia is fueling the tragedy to come and creating a lot of chaos even before the Khmer Rouge are, are on the march. And we also see that Sydney is kind of like Guy Hamilton because he's driven by ego and a very jaded view of his profession. Despite that, Pran and Sidney begin 
to sense the escalating danger posed by the Khmer Rouge as they witness the executions of rebels. And then the film jumps ahead to 1975 when the Khmer Rouge are, by this point, right outside the capital. And the, the sort of Western expat community in, in the embassies are, are panicking and trying to get out if they can. And at this moment, it's very clear that Pran and his family are in danger. And while uh, Sydney is trying to secure safe passage and succeeds for uh, Pran's family, Pran, devoted both to his profession and to Sydney personally, chooses to stay behind. Yes, he does choose to do that. But it, it has to be said, I think Sydney seems to guilt Prawn into staying as well, since they are on the brink of another big headline. I mean, they're the ones who are going to witness the sack of the city, the capital. And soon after that decision, Pran and a few Western journalists are actually captured by the Khmer Rouge and, and face certain execution. And only Pran's fast thinking saves them and everyone gather themselves and retreat to the French embassy, which is the last one still open. Uh, and it's kind of funny if you even see the poor Soviets are manhandled by the Khmer Rouge as they join their Western colleagues. And I think that's kind of underscores a point that the Khmer Rouge are not your average communists here. They don't, they look at the Soviet Union and the Chinese and the North Vietnamese uh, as just impure communists. And so they, they don't think anything about beating up on the Soviets the same way they would, you know, an American or a Frenchman. Yes. And, and because the film has done such a great job of establishing this sort of kind of homicidal purity uh, among these forces, many of whom are extremely young. And so you, you get very much the sense of like the, um, you know, the child soldiers, uh, in uh, various uh, African conflicts, you know, people who are sort of indoctrinated at such a young age that they're really kind of stripped of their of their humanity. When there is danger in this film, you really believe that people are in danger. So the scenes that then take place inside the embassy compound are extremely harrowing because everyone knows that Pran is a dead man as soon as they leave. The Khmer Rouge has demanded that all Cambodians be handed over. And the French ambassador, in again, this kind of wonderful uh, display of imperial disregard for you know, the legacies of what your imperial past has wrought on uh, you know, the Indochina that you were uh, once ruling over. And Pran's friends, they try to forge a passport uh, but the deception fails, and we see Pran disappear in the mass of Cambodians who are marched out of the capital and into an uncertain fate in the countryside, but we're all pretty confident of what is going to happen to him. Yeah, so that's where we, we flash forward a few months, where Sydney he's back in New York, desperately searching for Pran, you know, from afar, and also caring for his family who have, you know, now reside in San Francisco. But Pran, when it goes back to his scenes, is clearly in hell. And during the full effect of the Khmer Rouge's insane dystopian vision called Year Zero, uh, and this is when all intellectuals, which can be, you know, broadly defined, 
urbanites, uh, anyone with a hint of westernization, are executed or worked to death in the uh, the countryside. Um, and sometimes just having insufficiently rough hands from labor results in execution by these very young children, as you noted. So your fate is decided by all these preteens, since as uh, the ideology dictates, the young are pure. Yes, and here's here's where we kind of get into Pran's mind as he's having this experience and the, the way that they have done this in the film to to try and get at his internal life during this ordeal is they have him dictating a letter to Sydney in his head about the re-education that um, he is uh, supposed to be undergoing um, during during this time. Sydney, I think of you often and of my family. They tell us that God is dead. And now the party they call the Anka will provide everything for us. He says Anka has identified and proclaims the existence of a bad new disease, a memory sickness diagnosed as thinking too much about life in pre-revolutionary Cambodia. He says we are surrounded by enemies. The enemy is inside us. No one can be trusted. We must be like the ox and have no thought except for the party. No love, but for the Anka. People starve, but we must not grow food. We must honor the comrade children whose minds are not corrupted by the past. And you can tell from that, you know, Pran, he's pre- pretending to be a simple peasant, but he knows this can't last forever. Uh, and he kind of makes an enemy of a 13-year-old girl. He, he realizes that he's going to be up on the, you know, the, in the killing fields himself. So he escapes. And in a truly horrible scene, you see him stumble across what become known as the killing fields, these acres and acres of human skeletons with plastic bags wrapped around the heads because that's how they you know, take you off to be, to be executed. And we uh, know this is just a small fraction of the two million that are murdered in just a few years under Khmer, uh, Khmer rule. Yes, and a, a couple of things to point out here. That two million um, is a rough number. Um, we're, of course, not quite sure, but it is estimated. It's not just that it's 2 million, but that's about one third of the population of Cambodia was killed um, during during this period. And also just I want to insert a little uh, story here because I traveled in Cambodia and visited one of the areas that was designated as a killing fields memorial and it consisted of this uh, pyramid or sort of ziggurat of skulls and, and bones of the dead that had all been gathered from this, this area. And as I was walking around, I was with somebody and, and I kind of looked, I was looking down on the ground as I was sort of standing there talking to him and, and, you know, being very much emotionally overwhelmed by what I was seeing. And I realized that right next to my foot, 
was a tooth. And this is even at that point, 20 years after these events took place, that moment, you know, I will never forget. And it really brings, uh, brings us to the, the reality of, of just what it means when 2 million people are murdered that, that, you know, almost quite literally the ground can't even absorb that many people. I had no idea you were, you were there and witnessed that. I think that that's amazing. And, and we have to remember, this is a genocide that was not industrial in nature. You could not hide the bodies the same way, you know, the Nazi state could, for example. And so you're, it's, it's never going to be fully ex- excavated. Uh, and maybe nor should it, I guess. It'll, it'll be there as a scar uh, for generations. Um, so that's, you know, Prawn's ordeal is, is, I think, rather effectively shown on screen. Um, and we cut back to New York, where it's always really jarring to go back from the killing fields to Manhattan. And in Sydney, there is is reaping the benefits of of his and Prawn's work. And he does win the Pulitzer for this coverage. Sydney is clearly haunted by guilt and regret and uses his speech for the acceptance to to, to castigate American foreign policy in the region. Um, there's a lot of moral outrage, but you can tell that's really also fueled by intense personal guilt for pressuring Prawn to stay and do the work responsible for winning the award. Yes, and 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 Malkovich's character Al Rokoff is uh, there to remind him that they could have gotten Prawn out sooner. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Prawn is uh, actually captured and sent to another camp this time run by a man who who senses that Prawn is something more than a peasant, in part because this man is something more than a peasant and has managed somehow to still stay alive and in a leadership position, but not for long. Prawn is not punished by this man because the command, commander is, is worried that the coming war with Vietnam and the Khmer Rouge's tendency to purge its own, he's really concerned about how all of this endangers his his son. And so he hands his son over to Pran and directs him to the Thai border. Unfortunately, along the way, the young boy is killed by a landmine, but Pran himself makes it to the border. News of his escape reaches Sydney and the film ends with the two reunited in October of 1979. Sydney tearfully asks Pran if he forgives him, and always uh, beyond uh, decent, Pran says that there's nothing to forgive. We recorded this episode in two separate sessions. Normally we don't, but when we originally recorded in late July 2021, no one outside of the intelligence community could have anticipated how quickly the corrupt and fragile regime in Afghanistan would fall to the Taliban. We were treated to harrowing stories of desperate Afghanis with ties to U.S. forces, and of course thousands of women and girls fearful for their lives and futures in a Taliban state attempting to flee the country. 
I'm sure many of us saw or circulated the photos comparing the last chopper out of Saigon from April 1975 and the chopper in Kabul also hovering over the U.S. Embassy. It seems things have come full circle. As I watched this story unfold over hours, and it was really that fast, I thought about the scene in the killing fields with the Westerners holed up in the French embassy trying to help Dithpran evade capture. How many Afghanis were in this position? Also, did we learn anything from the last time we had done this ourselves? Without debating the proper use of force after 2001 versus the wholly disastrous and criminal invasion of Cambodia in 1970, the imperial conceit behind both seems clear. Propping up weak, corrupt, and unpopular regimes with foreign money and aid is a losing proposition. Our two films chronicle two separate examples of this, one in 1965 and the other in 1975. But what about the early 1980s, when our two films were released? The Cold War was jump-started again by Reagan's election, as we know. And while this was certainly the context for the politics associated with our films from episode four, Salvador and Under Fire, we can see this new and dangerous Cold War episode play out in the year of living dangerously and in the killing fields. Moreover, as we teased earlier, this period of the early 1980s is one of imperial nostalgia. Reagan and his fellow conservative partner in the UK, Margaret Thatcher, happily touted relationships with strongmen and authoritarian governments willing to join them in the anti-communist crusade. Our two films are cautionary tales. They are made at the height of this period of unapologetic Cold War rhetoric and show the terrible tragedies and injustices resulting from following such a cynical policy. We can point to a number of examples around the world in the 1980s of friendly dictators propped up by Western resources. But one close to the settings for our films this week is President of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. Marcos is a lot like Suerto in Indonesia, ruling for decades with the benign consent of the West. Marcos ruled from 1965 to 1986. He embraced what he called constitutional authoritarianism and ruled by martial law from 1972 to 1981, and was finally deposed only after his physical decline. He waged a terrible counterinsurgency against communists, but in reality, against anyone opposed to him, and finally went a little too far for the West by assassinating the opposition leader, Benigno Aquino, in 1983. Yeah, that's right. And that's Finally, when Reagan distanced himself from Marcos in 1984, uh, but only because the optics were so bad. Now, let's not forget Imelda Marcos's extravagant shoe collection. Marcos finally left when the country mutinied in the so-called EDSA revolution in February of 1986, after Marcos tried to steal the most recent election from Corazon Aquino, widow of the slain opposition leader. And even then, the Marcosos were allowed to live in the lap of luxury in Hawaii. So much for consequences. Let's play a report from this week with David Brinkley about this moment, because it sure reminds me of the fast-moving events depicted at the end of The Year of Living Dangerously, which, in turn, remind us of the fast-moving events that we have so recently been witness to 
in Afghanistan. And like what has just happened in Afghanistan, what happened to Marcos was really a long time coming. It's all changing by the minute, but from our open line to the Philippines, here's what is happening now. There is a mutiny, military and civilian, against President Marcos and his government. The defense minister of the Philippines and the second in command of the army are holed up in a fort surrounded by friendly troops demanding that Marcos resign. The fort is surrounded by civilians also, including women, Catholic priests, nuns, supporting the mutiny. First, a report from Manila, from ABC's Jim Lorick. The standoff between rebellious military elements and Marcos loyalists began Saturday. The defense minister, Juan Ponce Enrile, and the deputy chief of staff, General Fidel Ramos, leading the reformists, had decided on mutiny against President Marcos. As of now, I cannot in conscience recognize the president as, my, as the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. I call upon now everyone who is... Uh, uh, imbued with a sense of uh, justice and, uh, and uh, respect for the law to disobey uh, the orders given to them. The two, both longtime friends and Marcos supporters, both accused the president of cheating Corazon Aquino out of victory in the elections two weeks ago. The mandate of the people, they said, rightfully belonged to Aquino. And soon after all this chaos, uh, we, we have Ronald Reagan welcoming Corazon Aquino to the Rose Garden, like he wasn't the guy who kept Marcos flush with U.S. aid and tacit support for decades, or just one of many presidents uh, just being the last one. You know, c'est la vie. And remember, if Vietnam was a legacy of French imperialism and then American, and Indonesia was a legacy of Dutch imperialism, although the British characteristics in the year of living dangerously also stand in quite well, the Philippines is forever tied to American imperialism in the early 20th century. We fought a vicious war of our own in the country in the early 1900s and remained there through World War II and the entire Cold War. We still play nice with obvious lunatics like the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, and China is still there, right? So game on. I think it's appropriate to end this section with President Biden's remarks on the day things really fell apart in Kabul. They are instructive and demonstrate that, you know, for all his administration's fault in executing the withdrawal, and there were many, he at least seems to be breaking a cycle. I think it takes courage just to say no more. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency, but I always promised the American people that I will be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be 
creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan, two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibility on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. Nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. And with that, we end this additional insert uh, recording that we made after the uh, original recording of this episode. And so what you'll be hearing from this point on is again that original recording. Let's revisit our lies agreed upon for this episode and review some of the historical context. The first lie is about the persistent and often pernicious myth of heroic journalism. I think the year of living dangerously is pretty good about exploding that myth. Guy Hamilton is never heroic as a journalist, just finally true to himself by getting on a plane with Sigourney Weaver. And, you know, who wouldn't do that? Uh, the rest of the press corps in the film, aside from Billy, is degenerate and worthless. The Killing Fields is honest about demystifying Sidney Schoenberg, who is talented and empathetic in his own Western way, but he's also still vain and ambitious. Prawn is pretty heroic, we have to say, but not because he's a journalist. It's worth emphasizing that we're focused on these representations of journalists, not because we just want to shit on journalists and point out that they're human, it's because Western democracy loved to hold up the free press as proof of their righteousness, but only when it suits them. Governments, politicians, and the ubiquitous pundits are happy to abandon this ideal the second the press is actually doing its job and their coverage becomes critical or inconvenient. And institutions of power work to undermine the press whenever they can through the grinding demands of the free market. And that's really what we're wanting to call attention to in our discussion here. The second lie that the Western readership cares and that, that, that what journalists publish can kind of change the course of history, uh, and so governments can be held accountable for their foreign policy actions, we definitely get you know, no sense of this in the year of living dangerously. The ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, is really just this kind of distant thing. And you get these scenes of Guy you know, speaking his, his coverage into a microphone and, and this sense that this stuff just sort of goes out into the ether and that it doesn't really have any kind of consequence to it. We heard Billy Kwan's idealistic vision of, of what journalism can do to shine a light on poverty and corruption. But really, Guy and the others want scoops to build a career. People are constantly talking about wanting to get to Saigon, right? Like that, because it's 1965 and there's this sense that Vietnam is going to be, that's going to be the place to be, to, to have the story. 
And that, you know, really kind of still sounds like Boyle wanting to get back to El Salvador because he's sure that that's where the hottest news scoops are going to be. And and we really, at the end, just get a sense that nothing that Guy is reporting is going to change events on the ground. Really, Indonesia is just another domino to fall. And that's how it gets reported. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and I think the killing fields is a little different. Uh, good reporting exposed not only the secret war in Cambodia and the criminally stupid policies that gave us Vietnam a few years before that with you know the, the Pentagon Papers, but obviously Watergate too. And so Sidney Schamberg is, is living through the golden age of journalism, and he was part of it, deservedly. But we also see in this film how that sausage is made. You know, it, it's on the backs of, of people whose names you don't always remember. Uh, sometimes means leaning on your heart, on your local talent, pretty roughly, like Prawn. And when they fall over and become casualties in the quest for relevance, it's Schomburg who gets the award and Prawn who uh, suffers the fate of being indigenous to to the region that, that Schomburg is just passing through. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that we... Um definitely wanted to uh, to get at here is this idea that, the, you know, journalism is also portrayed as, in many ways, a kind of lone activity. And both of these movies, far better than those in the, in the previous episode, they do give space and time to the people who are the Indigenous people who make these, these journalists successful. And that, I think, is is something worth mentioning. Uh, obviously, in the case of The Killing Fields, it's happening because it's Dith Prawn's story that makes this such a compelling story, not, not Shanberg's. And in The Year of Living Dangerously, obviously, it comes from a, a novel, but the characters that are the locals who are the drivers and are the informants and are the insiders who know who to to speak to uh, you know Quan gets guy an interview with the head of the communist party and then the fact that his local assistant kumar is a member of the communist party and so we're actually reminded that these people have lives separate from the agenda of these Westerners who arrive, that these Westerners have arrived in the midst of this very big, complicated, local history, and that they're really just tourists and dilettantes in the grand scheme of things. And you do get more of a sense, I think, in these two movies, that there are these locals who have these, you know, rich lives where there are real consequences for them that aren't felt by these Western journalists that kind of come and go. Now, I think that really does come through here. And it gets to a, the, the third lie or theme, as we agreed to describe it, which is about imperialism and revolutions, specifically in this Asian context. And I think here's where we have to dig deeper into that historical context, because if you're like me, I had to do a little background reading on Indonesia in the 1960s to get the full picture behind the collapse of the Sukarno regime and that bloody civil war that comes as soon as Guy gets on the plane. Uh, Sukarno was initially a hero to Indonesia. That's why Billy admired him so much and was heartbroken when he felt betrayed. Uh, he, so Sukarno is someone who fought the 
Dutch colonialism and then Japanese occupation before emerging as the first president of Indonesia in a very, you know, kind of a non-aligned way. Uh, so initially an advocate for democracy, Sukarno became increasingly autocratic and crafted a policy in 1959 called guided democracy, which sounds about as authoritarian as you can get. And, and what it was really about was suppressing instability, of which there's quite a, a, a lot in Indonesia because of, of all the ethnic and religious conflicts. But it really was just a, a ruse to bring more power into the executive that is himself. And Sukarno pushed Indonesia to the left, which provided cover for the PKI, which is the Communist Party. And so the story is complicated because Sukarno starts out as this pro-democracy and non-aligned um, uh, leader who then becomes more autocratic and at the same time then begins to align more with the Soviet Union and China and this provides cover for the local Communist Party who see themselves as the way to overcome the fact that for all of Sukarno's positioning of himself, basic needs are not being met in the country. And the film very much shows this. And that reactionary forces, the military and the um, Islamists, are, are pushing against Sukarno as well. Uh, they want to remove him and liquidate the PKI, the communists, in sort of one fell swoop. And this whole complex interconnection of these three groups, all with their own particular interests, this is the background that all of the action that we're watching is taking place against. And so that's why the culmination of the movie is this coup that is mounted by the generals in the military. Now, it fails to remove Sukarno at first, but by 1967, the generals were in charge, the PKI was massacred, and a new leader, Suarto, a dictator who remained in power until 1998, largely because in this bipolar world order, the United States propped him up and looked the other way in the name of Cold War exigencies. The Killing Fields, though, is probably more familiar to audiences, but I think most of the coverage about Cambodia usually just concerns the U.S. role in enabling the Khmer Rouge in its gamble to win a, a more favorable outcome in Vietnam. What I like about the Killing Fields is, for once, we actually get some sense of who the Khmer Rouge were, what they believed, and how horrific life was under their short but genocidal reign. It actually made me even angrier about U.S. foreign policy because we made it happen. Uh, you know, the Khmer Rouge filled a void we created um, and instituted the most total of total revolutions we could possibly imagine. The film attempts to give us some background to what brought the Khmer Rouge to power in the first place which is the U.S. invasion of Cambodia along the border of South Vietnam and the U.S. indiscriminate bombing of supposed you know, Viet Cong staging points or safe havens inside the country. Uh, so Schomburg is safely ensconced in his Manhattan apartment in 1978, mind you, uh, watching footage on what has to be you know, one of the first VCRs ever. And you see him grimace as Nixon in what became known as the Nixon Doctrine, 
offers just vague commitments to aid, quote, our Asian Democratic friends, end quote. The actual speech is from April 30th, 1970. So here's Nixon announcing incursions into Cambodia. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Ten days ago, in my report to the nation on Vietnam, I announced the decision to withdraw an additional 150,000 Americans from Vietnam over the next year. I said then that I was making that decision despite our concern over increased enemy activity in Laos, in Cambodia, and in South Vietnam. And at that time, I warned that if I concluded that increased enemy activity in any of these areas endangered the lives of Americans remaining in Vietnam, I would not hesitate to take strong and effective measures to deal with that situation. Despite that warning, North Vietnam has increased its military aggression in all these areas, and particularly in Cambodia. After full consultation with the National Security Council, Ambassador Bunker, General Abrams, and my other advisors, I have concluded that the actions of the enemy in the last 10 days clearly endanger the lives of Americans who are in Vietnam now and would constitute an unacceptable risk to those who will be there after withdrawal. Yes, it's very interesting to see how this has been situated in here by Joffe to show how, with hindsight, in 1978, Schomburg is reflecting on what this speech of, related to this policy from 1970 actually wrought. Um, it's also worth noting that this 1970 speech, April 1970 speech, is what sparked you know, massive nationwide protests and, uh, at Kent State and elsewhere, but also, of course, the Kent State massacre, which occurred just five days later after this speech. I think it's also uh, worth noting that uh, while this speech sparked uh, nationwide protests, his announcement that there were new incursions into Cambodia is in fact happening. That announcement makes it sound as if these things are sort of just happening. And in fact, there had been this secret war being waged in Cambodia for years. Yes, I think it gets to the point about you know, the good that journalism can do, because would he have admitted it otherwise? Uh, and that's that's um, part of the accountability part here. So, so as you can uh, hopefully appreciate from what we've been saying through these uh, sort of complex uh, recitations of of the of the historical events, that really kind of that's the point is that the events that are at the center of our films in this episode are directly linked to imperial legacies, and uh, and one of the things that is good about these films is that they both create some space for us to appreciate that. However, as we said before, it is uh, constrained by the limitations of a couple of hours and the limitations of what a viewing public can, can kind of absorb in and amongst the, the, the story that's being told. Um, 
you know, the killing fields and the year of living dangerously through their journalists show the legacy of imperialism. And, and Billy Kwan in particular is adept at forcing this pool of Western reporters to confront, confront the fact that they are this sort of Western expat community enjoying all sorts of privileges that are part of this historical legacy. And, and still though, Billy wishes that it was different, which is why he's so heartbroken when Guy doesn't uh, live up to his expectations. Uh, so I think now it's time for our recommendations to, to wrap up. And I think you got the sense that we really admire and enjoyed both these films, you know, maybe a little bit more than we did uh, the ones in episode four. Brilliantly directed and powerful stories. They do strike a balance, more or less, between contextualizing these revolutions and and putting the stories of the people who are living through them on the ground uh, a, a little more upfront than most films about the subjects do. And I highly recommend both. And I obviously the Academy Awards and the BAFTAs and the rest of the critical community agree, which is not a big surprise, but if you somehow slept on these or it's been a while since you've seen them, revisit. Absolutely. I was actually really, it was very interesting to, because I remember I mean, I don't know, you wouldn't want to say that you love the killing fields because it's a bit of a grueling uh, experience. But, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, loving or at least greatly admiring these movies when they came out. But it, it is really interesting to see how well they hold up. Uh, and so uh, I would uh, also absolutely um, uh, recommend uh, both of these both of these movies. So we hope that you enjoyed this revisiting of these two movies. And uh, also, we hope that you will join us for our next episode, where we look in a, another way entirely at the uh, concept of revolts, revolutions, insurrections, etc. This episode was written by Thea Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Thea. And the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon.